Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 189, The Drumhead. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek and then pass judgment on it. Heck, sometimes we don't even watch the episode and pass judgment on it. Wait, wait no, 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 that's, that, that's not true. Right. That is definitely not something we ever do, ever. I am sorry. <laughs> that's not... We, we No, that's not a thing. No. This week... The drumhead, the one where Picard and someone you've never heard of are put on trial by Gene Simmons. And boy, do they rock and roll all night and party every day. (laughs) Yes, because it's that Gene Simmons. We were all so surprised when he was revealed to be this rather elderly British woman. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's not that Gene Simmons. We had to do it, though. We had to get that out of the way early on. Can I tell you? When I was a kid, I guess eight or nine years old, I was flipping mm-hmm. channels and there was some movie. You know how they used to do the, we'll return in a moment to blah, 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 starring so-and-so and Gene Simmons? Mm-hmm, right? I don't even remember what movie it was, but I sat and watched the whole thing because I kept waiting. Well, wait a minute. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't Runaway with Tom Selleck because that is awesome. Nor was it uh, Kiss and the Phantom of the Theme Park. Which is also awesome. <laughs> no, this was yeah. some movie with some woman. Hmm. Some woman apparently named Gene Simmons. They should really just tell a kid. That's all I'm saying. It's 78. It's 79. You know, it, it's yeah. the height of Kiss mania. It's the height of the Kiss army. It fooled so many of us. <laughs> this is painful to talk about. <sighs> hey, yeah. you know what we should do? Um, What's that? This show. Mm-hmm. In a moment, John's going to bang out some drumhead trivia. But first, uh, I want to tell you how to get in touch with us. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we'd love that. Our phone number is 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents and all kinds of other fun stuff, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Um, we've already covered the trivia that Gene Simmons is not that Gene Simmons. <laughs> right. right. I, w- I would imagine, though, that there is more trivia to hit. There's a little bit. So today's episode, The Drumhead, was written by Jerry Taylor. There was a story idea floating around by Ronald D. Moore, and uh, it was called It Can't Happen Here. That was a riff on the Salem Witch Trials, their parallel with McCarthy hearings, etc. Uh, and more importantly... This was an inexpensive show to produce since it all takes place on standing sets. And there was a working title, Conundrum, once Jerry started working on it. She would go on to say that this was her favorite episode that she wrote. 
It was directed by Jonathan Frakes. Jonathan had a great time directing this one, uh, one of his favorites as well. He says that he researched courtroom movies and lifted shots just wholesale from them. Uh, Movies like Judgment at Nuremberg, The King Mutiny, also a memorable episode for him because of one of the guest stars, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, we don't need to very deeply discuss the origin of the phrase drumhead trial since it is laid out for us in the episode. Suffice to say, it is typically a field court-martial or field trial, and while that's not on the surface a bad thing, there is a certain reputation associated with it, meaning that a drumhead trial is not exactly impartial. Now, we mentioned the music from time to time. This one is kind of a milestone since it is the last episode scored by Ron Jones. He had a falling out with the producers and went his own way after this one. Now, we saw that interrogation room that we see in this episode before in The Defector. It is a redress of the original USS Enterprise bridge from the movies, which we have also seen redressed many times into other sets like the Battle Bridge, the interrogation room prior to this, etc. Now, let's talk about those guest stars. Henry Voronich as Jadan. Henry has a long theater career, including Shakespeare, and his TV credits include Cheers, Quantum Leap, Third Rock from the Sun, Ed, Law and Order. We will see him again twice in Star Trek Voyager as two different characters. We have Earl Billings as Admiral Thomas Henry. Earl is from Ohio. He had appearances on Roots and Next Generation, The Bionic Woman, The Incredible Hulk, Knight Rider, What's Happening, Hill Street Blues, Cagney and Lacey, and Mad About You. And finally, Gene Simmons as Admiral Nora Satie. Simmons was a Star Trek fan. She amazed Michael Dorn by saying she knew exactly who he was, and she told Jonathan Frakes that she and her friends would call each other to discuss the previous night's episode. Kind of an early version of Mission Log, but we don't have the tapes. So (laughs) what can be said of Gene Simmons once we get rid of the inevitable kiss jokes? She is a legend among British actors, starting out in films in the 1940s. Bigger roles followed in movies like The Robe, Guys and Dolls, and of course, Stanley Kubrick's 1960 film Spartacus. It's hard not to find a great performance, whether it's TV or film. Interestingly, she appeared alongside Jonathan Frakes in the 1985 miniseries North and South as Clarissa Maine, the mother of Brett Maine, played by Jeannie Francis, also known as Mrs. Jonathan Frakes. Punk, punk, on the head. Prologue. A Klingon exobiologist, Jadan, is on board the Enterprise doing science things, and he has the unfortunate bad timing of being aboard when a computer security breach occurs, and shortly thereafter an explosion in the engine room. That security breach led to engine schematics being sent to Romulans, and, well, all fingers point to Jadan. He thinks it's a bit unfair. Riker and Deanna are just accusing him because he's a Klingon, but as they point out, their chief of security, High Wharf, is a Klingon too. Deanna knows he's hiding something, but they still don't know exactly what. On the way out of the interrogation, Jadan tries to get under Worf's skin with talk of that lingering discommendation, ring the bell for a prior story reference. He might be able to help out with his allies in the High Council if only, just maybe... Some security officer might find it in his heart to look the other way if an Enterprise shuttle went missing. 
Worf isn't exactly interested and expresses himself in the old-fashioned Klingon way with an elbow to the gut and a threat that Jadan's spying for the Romulans will most definitely end in his execution at the hands of the High Council. Act 1. With the investigation kicking into high gear, retired Starfleet Admiral Nora Satie is brought on board to help. You didn't see her back then, but she helped expose the conspiracy of alien parasites that were in, um, conspiracy. Ring the bell for reference number two. She has a couple of helpers with her, the Betazoid Zabin Genestra and Nellan Torre, who has very few lines. Wasting no time, Admiral Satie goes into engineering where Geordi LaForge can play back the tapes since the area of the accident is still sealed off due to radiation. Sure enough, it's a door on the warp core, and then that door blows off in an explosion. Two people were hurt, and Data chimes in that everything else was normal. It was the articulation frame that failed. Satie points out that some of those stolen plans had to do with the articulation frame, and hey, are you drawing the same conclusions I am about that Klingon in custody? Better have some dramatic talk over tea. Picard tells Satie what she already knows. A Klingon selling secrets to the Romulans is a bad idea. She knows there are politics involved, but the immediate investigation will have to focus on what is at hand. And what is at hand walks through the door. It's Worf, holding a hypospray. It's not just any hypospray. It's Jadans to treat his Baltasaur syndrome. But this one is different. There's a reader attached for isolinear chips, which means Jadan has the ability to read computer data, encode it as amino acids, and then inject it. Satya is impressed and asks Worf to lead the interrogation. He does, and with the hypospray evidence, Jadan cracks. He's one of those old-school Klingons who would rather fight than make peace, so yeah, guilty as charged about the whole spying thing, but not about the whole explosion thing. Jadan says he had nothing to do with that. He's escorted away, and Sabin, the Betazoid, says he's telling the truth. To Satie, this is grim news. If he wasn't part of a plan to sabotage the ship, then the conspiracy may involve more people. Act 2. Picard and Satie have a chat about what they face, conspiracy, on a starship. And Satie is warming up to Picard. He knew of her father's work, a brilliant judge. She explains that he would challenge the kids at the dinner table to debates which sharpen their argumentation skills, no word if they did this on outings to Chuck E. Cheese. Worf has been at work putting together a profile of Jaden, who his friends were, who he interacted with. Sabin is impressed and even reveals that he thought Worf might not have been above suspicion, given Worf's rather complicated family history. First up to be interviewed is Dr. Beverly Crusher. She says that Jadan came in once a week for his injection, but he didn't say much, and an assistant actually gave the injection anyway. Next, Simon Tarsus, crewman first class. He's just some lowly medical tech, and he happens to be the guy who is giving those injections to Jajan. He also happens to have slightly pointed ears, claims that there is a little bit of Vulcan in his background. Other than the injections, there was no other interaction with Jadan. All of that sounds good, but when he leaves the room, Sabin declares a young man was lying, not just frightened, but trying to cover something up. Act 3. In Picard's ready room, the captain is a little uneasy about the proclamation from Sabin. Even though Deanna Troy is around as counselor, this is a little different. She's not driving the investigation. Sabin is pushing the others to act based on his intuition. Satie says she'll do no such thing. She's just getting advice. And by the way, she advises that they restrict Simon Tarsus' movements. Picard almost agrees, but there is a lack of hard evidence, which Satie assures him will follow. Before they can debate the point further, LaForge calls from engineering. 
What he and Data have found is that the explosion was most likely an accident, the failure of parts at an atomic level. That does not sit well with Sabin. He's still hot on the trail of a saboteur, and Satie lays down a little nugget of logic all her own. Just because there was no sabotage doesn't mean there isn't a conspiracy on this ship. Jadan is an admitted spy, and he must have had help. Even Picard admits that acting alone would have been difficult. In that case, the investigation into Tarsus will continue. The next time they're all gathered for the hearings, it's a little bigger deal. There's an audience, and Dr. Crusher acknowledges that she saw Tarsus with Jadan outside of sickbay. But Satie doesn't stop there. She wants the names of anyone else who might have also socialized before Picard can cut this line of questioning short. Sabin takes to the floor to question Tarsus. This line of questioning is a little more direct about his access to biological materials that could have been part of Jadan's scheme. Then Sabin really drops the bomb, claiming that the explosion in engineering was caused by a corrosive compound from sickbay. When Tarsus objects that he had nothing to do with it, Sabin calls him a liar. Not for that, but for a more profound secret. Tarsus isn't part Vulcan. He's part Romulan. Act 4. Worf is diving into the investigation with a renewed vigor, demanding extensive background checks on Tarsus. Picard overhears it and asks to speak with him alone. Doesn't he see what's going on here? It's a drumhead trial. Ring the bell for mentioning the name of the episode in the episode. Quick decisions. Summary justice. No appeals. He can't allow this investigation to become that. Especially since what Tarsus has done by refusing to answer questions is not a crime. While Worf is ready to hunt down the enemies of the Federation, Picard can't let this paranoia go on any further. He knows just what to do. Time for tea. With crewman Tarsus and what we assume is a big pot of Earl Grey, the captain sets about to knowing him personally. Born on Mars, always wanted to be in Starfleet, but he backed out of going through officer training because he was impatient. Now he's terrified that he'll be kicked out of Starfleet for lying about his family background. Picard speaks with Admiral Satie now privately and explains what he sees going on. She's taking it not so well. Yes, she lied about volatile chemicals found in the engineering explosion as a tactic. No, she will not end the investigation. She's solely dedicated to maintaining the integrity of the Federation, even if that means more investigations, which it does. And Admiral Thomas Henry is on his way to preside over the new round. A few moments later, and Picard is back on the bridge, but Nellen enters, and, hey, she has a line to inform him that he is to be questioned the next morning. Act 5. Admiral Henry, head of Starfleet Security, has arrived, and the questioning of Picard begins, but not before the captain makes a statement imploring the group to end these investigations. Yeah, no. On with the questions, and first up is Satie, who reminds Picard that he has violated the Prime Directive... Nine times? Nine times. Starfleet is looking into that. Sabin is up, cornering Picard about the incident which the Vulcan ambassador Tapel was being transported and turned out to be a Romulan spy. There's Data's day, ring the bell. True. Picard delivered her and then, for the safety of his ship, did not try to get her back. This time, Worf jumps up to defend Picard, but he's shut down by a little mention of his discommendation. Ring that bell again for sins of the father. Now to dig in and make all of this super personal, Satie starts to grill Picard about his experience, the trauma of becoming part of the Borg. Two rings, best of both worlds, parts one and two. Satie has called into question Picard's actions and his loyalty. 
but he responds with a few words she'll recognize about forging a chain that hinders the freedom of all people whose integrity is questioned. She knows those words, spoken by her own father, Judge Sati, whom she adored. She does not take the history lesson well, exploding that she will take him down. It's all Admiral Henry needs to see, and without any lines for himself, he leaves the hearing. In fact, the hearings are over. Admiral Henry has left, followed by Admiral Sati. Alone in the conference room, Picard contemplates what has transpired when Worf enters, offering a kind of apology for his actions. Picard responds that we so easily fall back into the mindset that made burning witches a reality. There will be others like Sati, but vigilance is the only way to expose them. The end. I missed most of Act 5 because I was trying to remember what nine times was from. I, found, uh, I, I got I, it. I, no, no, wait. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say. Good. Because that's, that's part of the fun. And by the way, can I just say that, you know, you and I, yeah, I, I love it when people write in with that. Oh, I caught that. And sometimes a reference that I didn't even intend. Oh, that was a reference. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, What's fun to me is when we do like 12 of them in an episode and then yeah. somebody's like, oh, I like this one from this thing. And I have to go back and listen. Right. Because <laughs> right. I don't even. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought about how to put this episode together. The. um the, the synopsis and then what we do now, which is kind of decompress, mm-hmm. talk about the fun things in it. And then we talk about the serious stuff. And I kept thinking this episode is so serious yeah. that that I, I didn't like I was tempted to write kiss lyrics throughout the synopsis, <laughs> but I didn't do that. I couldn't bring myself to it. Right. That was important to point out all the references. Um, but but even with this, even with the fun stuff, I, I kind of um, I, I felt a little overwhelmed maybe because this episode is so heavy. But I tell you what, I'll kick it off, and I'll just say that Admiral Satie has the biggest zipper I've ever seen on a dress. <laughs> Not bad, right? No, right? Yeah. She also does a lot of costume changes, although she didn't mm-hmm. bring many dresses, which is kind of weird to me, because I would think you could just get to the Enterprise and have it make you whatever dresses you wanted. That's what I would do. But there was, like, at least... I, I know that she wore the same dress at least twice. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. it's because the neckline was so weird, and then, of course, there was the giant zipper, as you say. What I find funny is how every time Worf meets a Klingon, uh, they're like, uh, you know, in the Klingon homeworld, your name is not mentioned. It's as though you mm-hmm. never existed. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's sort of like John Champion on planet Earth or Ken Ray on planet Earth because it's a planet. Right. I mean, yeah, are there more right. than 12 people on the Klingon homeworld or more than 12 Klingons? Because if there are, yeah, maybe you just aren't hanging around those people. Now, right. con- conversely, have they all decided? I mean, we know they've decided they're not going to say his name because, you know, he was discommendated or however you say that word. Mm-hmm. But I mean, do they then do they like say things that rhyme with his name? <laughs> or like, oh, oh, that's good. Or is it like, yeah. you know, you remember mm, son of Moog, yeah. <laughs> except they can't say Moog's name either. Can't so say it's, Moog. it's like Kill no. Bill, right? So or Kill yeah. Bill volume, volume two, I guess was like, you remember mm, son of mm, <laughs> all the way through it. And that's how they all walk around. And that's why. Nobody knows Worf's name, and yet nobody's That's surprised. That's a lot of time spent not talking about someone. Seriously, right? Yeah, yeah. And do they get, like, a memo or something? Like, we all know that we don't say this guy's name? You ever come across right. this guy? He looks like right. this. We're not going to say who it is, though, because... Yeah. Yeah, not good. Um, cool tech things in this episode. I love the idea of biology being used to carry information. Yeah. So I wanted to look that up, and, and I was impressed to see that uh, Leonard Edelman created a DNA computer in 1994. Um, But even before that, if you just want to talk about DNA as a data retrieval method, just as something to hold data, 
that idea was proposed in 1964 in a Soviet science book and was actually put into practice in 2012 when a book, an entire book in HTML format was encoded along with, get this, 11 JPEGs and one JavaScript program multiple times, made a lot of copies, and you actually fit 5.5 petabits of information into one one millimeter cube of DNA. That's a lot of information. How do you read it? Uh, well, I guess you got to go get that DNA computer, right? <laughs> I guess. So, um, yeah. I guess maybe. Because this could just be scientists going like, oh, yeah, no, totally. We have, we have 5.5 petabits of information right, right there. Right. Oh, the reader? Oh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's well, in we're my still, other office. We're still working on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but trust me, those and, crafty and very, scientists. They are. And they make it very dramatic. I, I love the drama of Worf putting that hypospray into Dan's face. This device! And you, you cut, and he's just like, got his fist in front of his face with it. That's, uh, that's a pretty dramatic moment. Pretty serious. I don't think they actually do that in real trials. They should. They should, though. Yeah. yeah. I always thought the OJ trial would have ended differently if anybody there had watched Perry Mason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just you know <laughs> right a little bit of you know theatricality well I, well i guess there was some theatricality there's the whole glove thing but please right. that was 20 something years ago as we record this let's continue don't um, even remember it so here's the thing mm-hmm. beverly's on the stand and they're like mm-hmm. hey beverly let me ask you some questions and she's just like okay well here are your answers like, okay well thank you very much uh send in the next guy and the door opens and he's like standing there Kind of like my dog, you know, when I go to the powder room. I mean, good. Just like he's right there. He's right there. I would have given him maybe right. a chair, maybe, right. or had him sit in the back of the room or something like that. It's like he's just standing outside, going, "Should I? Should I knock? Should I? Should I just wait? What should I do?" <laughs> Poor guy. I know. Poor guy. Yeah. And that's just where his troubles begin. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> um. Oh, uh, Worf did have that line. I, I wish I'd thought about this earlier. Uh, he, he says regarding Moog, uh, what he did or did not do is no one's concern but my own. Mm-hmm. So that's Worf talking about his father. And, and actually thought, well, you know, if you pay attention, it seems to be everybody's business. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. It may, you know, the, the discommendation may be his business, but really it seems to be everybody's business. Well, there's a whole or, planet of people not saying his name. I'd yeah, say it's going more to than just, great lengths. Yeah, yeah, yeah pointing yeah. out that they're not saying his name. Mm-hmm. Um, I did wonder about Jadan uh, having his own hypo spray used by him for a chronic illness, uh, but someone else gave him the injection each week. <laughs> well, he hates hypo needles. I guess so. I mean, I'll buy it maybe if that had to come along with some kind of a checkup. Yeah. But but I think, you know, there are people who give themselves injections all the time very easily, insulin or whatever. Yeah. And that would be horrible if you had to just like, okay, I got to go to sick bay. I got to hand over the syringe I already own with the medicine <laughs> that I already bought and have them do it for me. You see, here's what I find fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. Too good for Beverly Crusher. Or too, I'm sorry, oh. too, too small. She's too good for that. You know, but, you know, oh, Leonard yeah. McCoy... Mm-hmm. He never would have given that over to somebody else because if there's one thing he loved to do, it was shooting people up, even if he didn't want it. Yeah, right? He, sometimes <laughs> you wouldn't even be looking, and he's he right. like out of nowhere, right? right? But she's right. like, "What? An injection? Please! Mm-hmm. I, I, I do not sully my hands with such. You, new guy. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Take that thing that that guy already has and could easily do himself and do it for me." <laughs> 
Well, there's no wonder that nobody knew who Leonard McCoy was, because uh, in this episode, clearly nobody had ever taken the time to watch Balance of Terror mm. and, and learn anything from Kurt's speech to Lieutenant Stiles. It was really you could have started there yeah. with, uh, with all of this. And yeah. Picard has obviously never seen an episode of Star Trek either, because he you know, says, mm-hmm. to, uh, says to what's her name, uh, Satie, I am so grateful for your presence, Admiral, because I've never seen an episode of Star Trek and have no idea how royally things can get muffed up the second <laughs> an Admiral comes aboard the ship. Oh, man, just be glad it wasn't a Commodore. You yeah, know. that's true. Please. Right. And uh, for those who do things like, you know, keep vast encyclopedias of Star Trek information, uh, some details here that I thought were interesting. The seventh guarantee of the Federation Constitution. So they do have such a thing as a constitution. And that seventh guarantee is essentially the Fifth Amendment that you you don't have to incriminate. You don't have to answer a question uh, with, with the idea that might incriminate yourself. And we got details that we did not get out of Best of Both Worlds or since Best of Both Worlds. 39 ships and 11,000 people lost at Wolf 359. I imagine that might be uh, some story detail that we'll hear about probably in Star Trek yet to come. Punk, punk, on the head. So, sort of like you said, um... You kind of didn't want to do the light part of the show because the show's so heavy. Yeah, yeah. I seriously thought about just not making notes hmm. because this show just is so like full of, of stuff. It sort of started to feel a little bit silly, like all the notes that I was making, because it's pretty much like I'm like writing every minute of the show. Yeah, that's sort of the difficulty is that we will we will inevitably miss some things where or at least we have self-edited mm-hmm. some things that I imagine our listeners will fill in and and that's great because yeah. I think that there is so much here, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um let's talk about opening the hearing to spectators because I think you said in the recap it's a lot more full this time or a lot more people there this time. It's actually kind of a thing because it mm-hmm. had been it had been closed. It's just like, oh well, only the people who need to hear about this need to hear about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden, um, there are all those people there. Now, mm-hmm. on the one hand, I mean, there is, there's, there's, there, there are good parts of having like an open court system, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you don't have, theoretically, you don't have secret courts and secret trials and secret verdicts mm-hmm. and people just disappearing. Yeah. And, and yet, this isn't really a trial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just a hearing. It's just questioning. Although Picard does say in the end, it's, it's a trial. And, and, and yeah, people want to say it's not a trial, but, you know, these people are actually being put on trial. We're being put on trial. Right. Um, so opening it up then, just the specter of guilt is going to tarnish somebody. But then the thing that was even more amazing that I kind of wondered about is who are these schmoes from the Enterprise crew that show up for a hanging? Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, so mm-hmm. so Tarsus is accused, not actually accused of something, but there's suspicion now around Tarsus. And so all these people show up because they want to watch. Why? What are yeah. they there for? Honestly, I found that incredibly disappointing. Now, there's a lot to be disappointed by in this episode <laughs> as far as behavior. But one of the things that like really disappointed me, I would like to think that if somebody said, hey, one of the guys who works with this might be in trouble. You want to come watch him get grilled? I'd like to think mm-hmm. that most people would say no. And then again, we have, you know, 
nine different court, you know, reality courtroom, whatever, from Judge Judy to Judge Roy Brown to, to the People's Court to the New People's Court. I mean, we, we have all this sort of like, I mean, so there's kind of, I guess, an inherent fascination with that kind of thing. But then there's also, you know, I don't know, Jerry Springer and whatever show Geraldo has this week and, you know, all those sort of daytime, like, I don't want to call them talk shows. I mean, we're, we're, yeah. we're sort of endlessly fascinated with the banality of, of other people's problems. I mean, maybe that's all this is, but in the 24th century, I would really hope that we would have something better to do. You know, I would, but I've got a video of these two chicks playing, like, lutes (laughs) (laughs) that I'd really rather watch than some guy being raked over the coals. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I I do agree with you. I I think there's something very prurient about watching something with the idea of of watching that person just go down or just be taken down, you know? Right. And, And a lot of these judge shows are like that. Um, but, you know, here we are in the 21st century and, you know, C-SPAN is still a thing. And nobody watches it. shouldn't say nobody, but very few people watch it. But that is a, a channel where you can actually watch things like congressional hearings when they yes. happen. And, and you can watch them uninterrupted and without commentary. And that's a pretty great thing. But very few people actually tune in to watch that. They see the recap on the news show, you know, the, the five-minute sound, not even five minutes, maybe a 10-second soundbite, and then five minutes of people arguing about what that means. So I kind of thought that for a moment, sure, you've got people who are there, but it's not out of the question that – there's also some sort of a camera system which is allowing everybody else to watch this if they wanted to. I was kind of wishing, though, that it was like it was mandatory for people to watch it. Like you say, the camera system thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just disappointed that people showed up to see a guy get flayed. Yeah. I, and and if they if she had like done some sort of something to either incentivize people to watch it or to actually force people to see it, that would be different. Of course, that would make her much more well mustache twirling villain uh, which we'll, mm-hmm. as a quote we'll hear again later mm-hmm. um but it, it just it, like i say it was just disappointing that uh, so many people were sitting there gawking yeah well it, it is but i i don't know I, I definitely think there are two sides to this so one of the the big influences on the show was of course the mccarthy hearings mm-hmm so and and if you don't know the story and don't know the history there, please, please read up on Senator Joseph McCarthy and the investigations through the House on American Activities Committee. Um, it, it was Joe McCarthy was elected in 1947. He's from Wisconsin, and he really sort of made a name for himself starting in the early 50s by accusing people of carrying out un-American activities, specifically accusing them of being communists. And he didn't stop there. He went after people uh, uh, accusing them of being gay and uh, whatever else he, he could try to sully somebody's reputation with. And this was all a power grab, and it was all ideologically driven. See also the crucible. We mentioned Salem Witch Trials, um, and that is mentioned in the show, and uh, that was Arthur Miller's play in 1953, inspired directly by what was going on with the McCarthy hearings. And if you want to see, I I will say really mm -hmm. quickly, too, if you want to see McCarthy treated kind of comically, and yet in a really Mm -hmm. great movie, uh, The Manchurian Candidate. Oh, sure. Certainly what uh, Johnny Isling, I guess, was it Isling? I think it was right. Yeah, Yeah. Johnny Isling um, was a a sort of buffoon, but very Mm -hmm. much modeled on... uh, very much modeled on McCarthy, I think. 
Well, and, and that's what I think is interesting about you talking about people watching this or not watching this or maybe being required to watch this on the Enterprise. So the fact that those hearings were not only just available for news, but then you had a guy like Edward R. Murrow doing extensive broadcasting about what was happening with McCarthy. So this was must-see TV in 1954. All right, in this episode, Picard gives the Kirk speech. This time it's the Picard speech, and it's what we hope happens in real life, that the right words are all it takes to steer us back on course. The right words will actually defeat the bad guy here. And it actually kind of did happen like that in real life. It's remarkable that so when McCarthy was hammering away at the lead legal counsel for the army, uh, that was Joseph Welch, talking about a young man in his office, Fred Fisher. Welch didn't buckle and he shot back with the now famous line, let's not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? And there's a bit of that character assassination with Tarsus when Sabin backs him into a corner for lying about his background, thus making him a liar, compounded by his pleading of the fifth. So maybe more so this time and closer to that Picard speech here is Edward R. Murrow on See It Now in 1954. And I just have to read this, this one paragraph because it so perfectly parallels what Picard says. And it's a great moment. You can watch it all on YouTube. You can see the original broadcast. You can see McCarthy's response to that. And you can see Edward R. Murrow's rebuttal to McCarthy. So it's three, about 22 to 25 minute shows. What Murrow said was, we must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends on evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason. If we dig deep into our history and our doctrine and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. I found that to be so moving and so great to read those words and then to go back and watch him say those words because this episode was... The perfect stand-in for a moment in American history, but also a perfect stand-in for an idea. Star Trek expressing an idea so beautifully as, as you and I have seen a few times before and, and really latch on to. So there was another thought that I had um, when Satie tells Picard. Picard is worried about evidence. And this goes back to that, uh, that Edward R. Murrow speech when he says we have to use evidence and due process. And Picard tells Satie that he's worried that there is no evidence about Tarsus. Why, why are they trying to restrict him if there is no evidence? And she says, we will have clear evidence. Saban and Lieutenant Worf are continuing to investigate. But if you don't act until then, it may be too late. What if next time it's more serious? What if lives are lost? And out of all the many moments that, that the whole process here goes off the rails, this was a major one for me. That, mm. that stuck out. This is trying to find evidence to fit the narrative that has already been decided rather than the other way around. Yeah. Which is so incredibly disheartening and so incredibly sad. But we allow ourselves to do that so frequently. It's so easy for our minds to do that, to just hunt for the evidence that we think will fit what we've already decided is the outcome. Well, yeah, I mean, they've got this idea. And here's the thing. It, it's kind of true. Well, it's not true. Everybody, though, even Data, 
doesn't mm-hmm. think that this is a coincidence, right? They caught Jadan uh, stealing information, mm-hmm. and then the uh, the hatch blew, right? Yeah. Now, and 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 Data says, "Oh yeah, there's there's plenty of stuff to to make this seem like a like a like a conspiracy, like like a like mm-hmm. like you know that these two things are related." I'll tell you what this whole um, the part that you just hit on reminded me of uh, two things. Um, mm-hmm. I think I may have mentioned this before on this show. When Stephen Colbert hosted the White House Correspondents' Dinner uh, back mm-hmm. in, I guess, 2006, mm-hmm. uh, he said of then-President George W. Bush, here is a man who believes on Wednesday what he believed on Monday, and it doesn't matter what happened on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely what, what Satie is coming and doing, right? She's decided, yeah. and nothing is going to dissuade her from that. Um, the yeah. other thing that it reminded me of is when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I mean, she knows what's going on when she gets there. And now all she has to do is construct the details in such a way to prove that what she knew all along was true, that, that yeah. what's going on is what's going on. Um, they find the whole thing about the molecular breakdown on the hatch. And Satya says, I'm afraid I'm out of my element, Commander. You'll have to interpret for me. Uh, but then I'm going to ignore your interpretation because it doesn't fit my narrative. <laughs> right. I mean, she doesn't say right. that, but I mean, she says it. Yeah. She, uh, that's how she acts anyway. I mean, they find evidence yeah. that the hatch, that the hatch, excuse me, in the warp core blew because of a faulty part. And Satie says, as you pointed out earlier, just because there was no sabotage doesn't mean there's no conspiracy on this ship. That's such a chilling line. It's it's kind of crazy, and and I mean, yeah. Picard does say yeah, it seems unlikely that Jaden could have acted by himself, but not impossible. It's not mm. impossible that he would have. Now, on the one hand, you think, okay, yeah, you do kind of want to do a cursory thing there, but I mean, what she does is completely the opposite. Well, there, there's definitely something bad uh, going on here, and we're just going to keep questioning people until we find a bad thing. And mm-hmm. if and if you try to stand in my way on that, then uh, well, then we're going to start questioning you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that Sati, for all of her dedication to logic and and her powerful way of delivering <laughs> uh, her points, the, there's sort of a logical flaw there with saying just because there was no sabotage doesn't mean there's no conspiracy on the ship. Unfortunately, she's, well, she's trying to prove a negative. <laughs> you know, she's sort of backing herself into the corner of having to manufacture this evidence um, for a thing that isn't there, which is uh, is really sad and, and it's really crazy. Um, Worf has some really interesting moments in this episode. I don't know that we'll hit all of them, but um, he has a line that he says to Picard uh, regarding Tarsus. If a man were not afraid of the truth, he would answer um, which obviously, it, it, when you keep looking for every last enemy, you you end up with very few people remaining. But I kept thinking, Worf of all people should actually understand the problem here. Worf is the guy who didn't answer <laughs> because he couldn't uh, during the discommendation. He was the guy who who sort of had to let things be as they were. Um, even though he has to live with this this guilt, you know, the, this problem that he, he walks around with. I would have hoped that Worf would have had a little more uh, understanding, a little more sympathy for what Tarsus is going through. But at the same time, it's kind of perfect that you you have to have the security chief be the one who's so wrapped up in the idea of the investigation that he's blinded by that same ideology. For all the times that Picard has told Worf to put down the phaser, now he's got somebody who outranks Picard saying, go, just do whatever you want to do. 
Well, and I mean, he absolutely decides to do it. You've also got to keep in mind, five minutes ago, he just found out that somebody stole information from under his nose and sent it off to the Romulans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, so now he's, he's got to make it look good. He's yeah. going to be smarting from that as well, which is not to say, mm-hmm. it, it's not to say, well, I don't know. I mean, he'll be questioned again later with the whole thing with, um, is it to Paul? Not to Paul. I can't remember. The, but the Vulcan, who turned out not to be a Vulcan, turned out to be a Romulan. Tapel. Tapel. Okay, yeah. well, my, my mistake. Yeah, uh, yeah. a little different. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. uh, and neither one is Tapel. But anyway, no. um, so, so I mean, he well, it, it's pointless, actually, to talk about then she questions him about that. Because, I mean, at that point, everybody's a bad guy, except mm-hmm. for her and her people. I mean, otherwise, nobody is nobody is beyond question. And it's true. Nobody is beyond question. But, I mean, should you even be asking the questions at that point, I suppose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I did have an interesting question here that I thought. Um, at the end of the day, what if the suspicions were right? What if Jadan is directly responsible for the explosion in engineering that could have been much worse? What if there were a bigger conspiracy there? Because then you are led to these questions about the ends justifying the means. Do they or or do they not? And I absolutely hate, hate, hate to use the Benjamin Franklin quotation about security and liberty because the original context has been so completely and utterly ripped apart. But it sort of fits here. So I feel compelled to do it. He he said those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. And I thought that that was one of those sort of central ethical conundrums. We're not going to have a show where Picard is wrong. Certainly not this show where Picard is wrong. But it had been so long since I had seen this episode that when I watched it again for the first time for Mission Log, I wondered if there was any element of doubt that hung around at the end of the show. And there isn't. (laughs) But for a moment there, I wondered if there was. And I wondered if there was any statement to be made about holding on to the values that the Federation has that uh, that Picard is clearly trying to typify and personify being more important than the value that Satie expresses through this blind dedication to her ideology. Well... I mean, there's one there's one thing I would back up on a tiny bit there. You say no doubt lingers at the end of the episode. It doesn't hurt that she went crazy in front of everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. the one thing, well, that's jumping ahead to the end. The one thing that, I'll do it anyway, though. The one thing mm-hmm. that kind of bothered me about the way this episode ended was it ended up just being her mad power grab. And that was mm-hmm. laid completely bare in front of everybody. I mean, in the end, all this is, is something got in my way. I believe what she yells at Picard is, I've taken down bigger men than you. Yep. And, you know, then it's easy to go, wow, she was crazy. Kind of feel bad that I followed. You know what I mean? But, I mean, yeah. she could have just been, I mean, if she had, hmm. I was I was sort of bothered that, that the way this was actually resolved was everybody got to snap out of it because she went nuts. Had she not gone nuts, how much further would we have followed? Honk. Honk. On the head.
Yeah, I can't help it. I try not to say something stupid, but, uh, you know, in our case, John, uh, work mm. is banging on the drum head all day. Mm. I'm sorry, I couldn't... I, it, you know, the whole the whole song thing gets stuck, and yeah. it has to... goes round and round, and it comes out here. Mm-hmm. The drum head, John, uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we have this thing that we do at the end where we ask questions about, you know, what the messages were, uh, whether the whole thing holds up, all that jazz. Uh, start, mm-hmm. please, with the holding up part. Does this episode hold up? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it does, but, it, but I think I'm going to judge it on slightly different criteria than I normally do to answer the back question. The performances are all great, yep. um, which doesn't hurt because this is an all-talk episode. So we have to be totally invested in the characters and the world they're in for any of this to work. Um, it, it is essential viewing as far as the, the morals, meanings, messages, which we'll get into, mm-hmm. uh, what Star Trek is trying to say. Um, but I will say this. I don't think it's as good an episode on repeat viewings, at least not close to each other. Really? Yeah, because I I watched this several times back to back or or maybe, you know, separated by a day leading up to to doing this episode. And the thing is, you know what's happening. There aren't other things to look for in the episode because it's all laid out very clearly in front of you. So what you're doing is you're sort of marking time before the big moments. And the big moments are those fantastic speeches. Now, they're fantastic speeches. There's no question about it. And you can watch those actors chew that scenery and give life to those words all day long. But I think there are other episodes that we've watched where I'll watch it and then I'll think, oh, if I go back and watch that again, I'm going to discover things about what happened in that episode. Hmm. And in this, it's all very much on the surface. But that's okay. That's better than okay. That's fine. You know? Um, because it really works as a standalone episode. It really works as a statement piece from Star Trek, and it really works as a character piece. Um, so for all of those reasons, it, it holds up beautifully. And, uh, and like I said, I don't want to jump ahead here into what the morals, meanings, messages are, but, but that is sort of one of the key elements to what is so great about this episode. What about you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it absolutely holds up. Now, I, I will say I, I disagree with you on one thing. Watching mm-hmm. it a few times, I still found myself wondering things about different characters. And and, mm. and maybe this is because we watch it far too closely, but hey, why is Jadan wearing brown? <laughs> Not black. Okay, now that's a dumb one, but it did like distract me every time. Um, yeah. I actually found myself, so so while, uh, while Satie is buttering up Picard, uh, Sabin is buttering up Worf. And they're both saying, you know, mm-hmm. I have my doubts about you, but I'm totally with you. Now yeah. and then, of course, they both end up turning on them later, and I, I found myself wondering, like, is anything that they're doing actually genuine? Because by the time you get to the end of it, Sabin realizes, okay, well, Satie's gone nuts, but did he always know she was nuts? I mean, were they both writing their respective star to the top, or was he like a true believer and she just turned out to be crazy, or were they both true believers who suddenly went too too far along? You know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know nothing. I, I know about HUAC. I know a little bit about that, and I know a little bit about um, uh, what happened between Murrow and uh, and uh, and McCarthy. Mm-hmm. I don't know how McCarthy started. I don't know. I don't know what his thing was. I mean, you know, initially, and I don't know what her thing was initially. I actually think it bears watching over and over again. Honestly, I mean, you're right. There's no. 
there's not a lot of nuance, but as you say, those speeches are absolutely incredible. Plus, what did you say? This should be required. Oh, it's essential viewing. This should be required yeah. viewing. Uh, sometimes yeah. people have told us that one of the things that really annoys them is how much politics we put into Star Trek. Oh, really? <laughs> no, we oh, don't. Oh, really? No, we don't. <laughs> we do not put politics into Star Trek. Uh, there's politics in Star Trek. You're thinking of Star Wars. <laughs> that, that is uh, that's an interesting criticism. Star Trek is what's starting the conversation, <laughs> you know, and that's always been the point since 1966. Star Trek is there to start the conversation. It's always fascinating to me when people just accuse us of putting politics in. I mean, let yeah. that be your last yeah. battlefield. Uh, was when? 68, 69, 68, I guess, right? Yeah, 68. Okay, yeah. so for at least, as we record this, the past 48 years, uh, they've been putting politics in Star Trek. Probably yeah. even before that. I, I mean, I guess Balance of Terror would be an excellent example, right? Sure. And, and that was season one, so that was what, 66, 67? Mm-hmm. So as we record this, 49, 50 years they've been doing that. I'm pretty sure yeah. it's not us. Anyway, though, we, yeah. should, we should move on to other things because it's starting to sound like a couple of old men kvetching or, <laughs> or kvetching, and we're not nearly that old. Uh, what about messages, sir? Uh, well, there, there's so many. You know, I, I started out the list just thinking that, in general, seeing conspiracy everywhere you look is a terrible hole to fall into and a terrible life to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this does a, a good job of showing that process and that progress of, of sort of looking into it, getting ahead of it, but then unable to actually see what's going on because, again, everything has to fit the narrative. And that's uh, it's really sad. It's really unfortunate. But there are people like that. Um, now, you said politics, and, and I'm thinking, okay, well, how easy can we make this for a contemporary audience? Um, replace the word Romulan with communist. Okay, that one doesn't work. How about socialist? Uh, how about black? How about gay? Uh, that was one of other McCarthy's pet projects, as I mentioned. How about Muslim? Should we throw that one in there, too? You know, um, that's the message of this show, is that every time we decide to paint people with a broad brush and decide that we will impugn them because of who they are and not what they do, then we absolutely lose part of ourselves in the process and we lose part of the values that we say are important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take some more. Um, you know, th- this episode is a description of what happens when ideology gets in the way of our rational minds and our human compassion. We ask ourselves how terrible things happened in history, uh, say, like the rise of fascism. But it's incredibly easy to see it when people who should know better allow their thirst for power or, again, this, this following of an, of an ideology to become all-consuming. And at the end of it, well, we're, we're left with that one line that I think you and I uh, both really like, vigilance. That's the price we have to continually pay to make sure that we don't just slip into that, that easy sort of feel-good reaction of taking down an enemy when they may not actually be an enemy, when we're just being blinded by the narrative we want to perpetuate. That's a handful. What about you? I sort of have to go back to the whole um, what are you defending idea, like what mm. happened with Worf's discommendation. Admiral Satie is so proud of and amazed by the United Federation of Planets that she will completely undercut everything for which it stands to make sure that it stands. 
right? I mean, like mm-hmm. the, the seventh guarantee or the seventh whatever that Picard was talking about, which is basically the Fifth Amendment. Yeah. I mean, she's trying to turn people's right to not answer a question against them. And mm-hmm. and that's that is described by Picard as one of the central tenets of the United Federation of Planets. And yet to protect the United Federation of Planets, she will completely go against what it stands for. Um, and so I don't know what you got at that point. Same as what was happening. You know, the Klingons, we have to defend our honor. How are we going to do that? By being totally dishonorable. Mm-hmm. But from the outside, mm-hmm. it'll look great. Um, here's Here, I guess, is the reason that I think it actually stands up again. Until you can recite all of the great lines from this episode <laughs> without watching it, then I think it bears watching. And, you know, I can I used to be able to do whole Monty Python albums and I can do whole monologues from um, Glengarry Glenn Ross. And the reason I can do them is because I watched them over and over again because they had, you know, fascinating things to say and fascinating ways in which they were said. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, this this episode is just constantly tossing out messages. Uh, the road from legitimate suspicion to rampant paranoia is very much shorter than we think. Um, mm-hmm. With the first link, the chain is forged. The first speech censured, the first thought forbidden, the first freedom denied chains us all irrevocably. The first time any man's freedom is trodden on, we're all damaged. Uh, villains who twirl their mustaches are easily spotted. Those who clothe themselves in good deeds or well camouflage, and of course the one you mentioned earlier, vigilance, uh, that is the price we have to continually pay. So, I mean, I mean, it's message after message after message in this episode. This is, I mean, you don't find gems here. This is a mine of, yeah. of, of just amazing stuff, and it seriously should be, you know, required viewing for uh, everybody. It's redundant if we ask each other if this holds up the messages. Yeah. It is, and, and <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that um, I, I think somebody on Twitter uh, posed before we recorded this show. You know, is part of the problem here that this episode holds up because these ideas, the, these problems that this show addresses, still continue today. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's so it's, yeah, it, it's a real bummer how yeah. much this episode holds up. And it's also a real bummer that, you know, this is not an episode. I mean, people watching Mission Log or people listening to Mission Log, excuse me, will watch it this week Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, hey, it's time to watch that episode because they're going to talk about it. Um, I wish it were on every night at eight. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) right. Right after the news or maybe instead of the news, because honestly, you get more out of this than you get out of the news, (laughs) it seems to me. Yeah, I'm really bummed. I think I actually said this about Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, too, now that I think about it. I'm really bummed that this episode holds up. Yeah. Because it would be nice if it didn't have to, but uh, it does, and sadly it continues to. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com, including the very good work done by the Roddenberry Foundation. You can also find products and other information about what Roddenberry Entertainment is up to. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, please check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, half a life. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com.
if you would like to produce a fan series about Judge Aaron Satie. I will happily donate a few quad loos. Have your people call my people. And transmission. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.